I'm so glad that we're here this morning, that you're here and that I get to be here with you. Uh, as was mentioned, we have a number of our members who uh, have not been able to be with us and yet are here this morning. We're so grateful for that, grateful that we're able to be together in presence with one another. We're also grateful for technology that allows some who cannot be here to uh, join us online. Uh, thank you for being here. And to our visitors, again, we're grateful for your presence, that you've chosen to come and be with us. And maybe you're not familiar with everything that we do and all of our traditions, um, but we have long had the tradition here, and it's not something that's unique to us, of course, but we've had the tradition of offering an invitation to come to the front at the end of our sermons. Uh, this call or invitation might, might be for any number of reasons. Someone might come to the front because they want to become a Christian. They want to put Christ on in baptism. Maybe it's someone who has sin in their life and they want to confess and repent of those things and, and have their brethren pray for them that they might be healed. Uh, even as we studied this morning from the Psalms and as the New Testament talks about a great deal. Maybe someone responds to that invitation and comes to the front just because they're struggling with something in their life. And, and maybe it's not even something that's sinful in any way, but it's something that's bothering them, something they're having a hard time with. And so they desire the prayers of, of faithful Christians that they might be helped by God in that scenario. Um, a couple of years ago, um, James, if you remember James, came forward uh, and he said, uh, when he came forward and I talked to him, he said, now you mean to tell me that I can just come to the front and all of these people will start praying for me? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's exactly what we're talking about. For these or any number of other reasons, someone might respond to the invitation that we offer at the end of our sermons. And while it's a tradition to extend an invitation in this way, the concept of God inviting people to come is grounded in both the Old and New Testaments. God called His people out of Egypt inviting them to follow Him and establish a covenant with Him at Sinai. God called the prophets to come and to relay His message to the people. And then He used those prophets to call His people to repentance. But it was always just an invitation from God. Are you willing to do My will? Well, then I ask you to come and do it. Isaiah 55, for example, is one long invitation to God's people from the prophet Isaiah. Listen to just a few verses from that chapter. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. And of course, it's not just in the Old Testament. Jesus Himself offered many invitations to His apostles, to the rich young ruler, to the little children, to Zacchaeus, and others. He asked people to simply come and follow Me. And so this morning... It is the invitation of Jesus that we wish to extend to all of you. And we pair 
in our tradition this invitation with another tradition, an invitation song that goes with it. And that song isn't just a a time filler to give people more opportunity to, to think about what they need to do and to walk down to the front. And it's not just, although it's good for this, it's not just kind of getting them up and moving by us all standing. You know, you're halfway to the front if you stand up. It's also words that are sung by all of us that further extend that invitation, that echo the invitation of Jesus by our own words, that we ourselves are singing to ourselves, but also that we are all singing to one another, that it's Jesus' invitation and our invitation to come. And so to all who might need or want to come this morning, instead of just giving the one invitation, we're actually going to give four opportunities this morning. Wait no longer. If you hear these words of calling and know you need to come, accept the invitation. And our first invitation will be offered by Harold. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Acts in the 26th chapter. Acts 26. In Acts 26, the Apostle Paul is standing before King Agrippa. And in Acts 26 and verse 1, Agrippa tells Paul, he says, you are permitted to speak. And so Paul begins to speak, and what he does, he tells about his conversion as he traveled from Jerusalem to Damascus to persecute Christians, and how that the Lord appeared to him on that road and told him to go into Damascus and wait, and someone would come and tell him what he needed to do. And Paul talked about how that he had been chosen by God to preach the gospel to the Jew and Gentile. And he said that his witness was in accordance to what Moses and the prophets had said, that Jesus must suffer, die, and be raised from the dead. If you look down to the book of Acts in the 26th chapter and verse 8, when Paul had finished telling about his conversion and what his mission was, Agrippa said, Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. God wants us to be Christians. You remember in the book of Luke, in the 19th chapter, in verse 10, that Jesus spoke and said to Zacchaeus, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And Paul himself wrote in the book of 1 Timothy in the second chapter in verse 4 and said that God desires all men be saved and come to the knowledge of God. But God wants us to come fully convicted and he wants us to come fully committed. And so he tells stories like 
the man going to war and saying, count the cost. Telling us, make sure that we're convicted. Preaching is a way that God has chosen to try and convict us. You hear Agrippa say, almost thou persuaded me. Well, preaching is about persuading. In fact, if you look up that word persuade in the Greek, it's a word that means to convince. And Vine's Expository Dictionary would add that it means to convince by the influence of reason or moral consideration. And when you look back to passages like the book of Acts in the 17th chapter in verse 3 where Paul is in Thessalonica, it tells us that he reasoned with the people. You would find it again in Acts 18. He reasoned with the people. In Acts the 24th chapter in verse 25, he stood before Felix. And the scriptures say he reasoned with him righteousness and self-control and judgment. He told him how we ought to be righteous and how we need to make ourselves do those things that are righteous and how that one day we will stand and give an account of our life because we are accountable. Hoping to persuade Felix to obey the gospel. And he speaks to Agrippa on this occasion trying to persuade him to accept Jesus Christ. You remember Agrippa's response? Paul, you've almost convinced me or persuaded me to be a Christian. Why do you suppose, he said, Paul, you almost persuaded me to be a Christian? Do you suppose that the evidence was insufficient? That if he really just needed a little more instructions, that that Paul would not have been willing to stay and to preach to him a little longer? If Jesus was not the Christ, who was he? If Jesus was working miracles, saying he was the Christ, he had to be the Christ. If Jesus was raised from the dead as he was, it was to show that he was the Christ. What more could Agrippa really wanted? Why didn't he cry out and say, Paul, tell me a little more? Or could it possibly be that he knew the truth, but it was just a little bit more than he wanted to do at that time, a little bit of procrastination, a little bit of pride, a little bit of stubbornness? We wonder sometimes in an audience like this, how many people are almost persuaded? And we can understand you need persuading, and that's what preaching is for. And just let us know, and we'll be glad to sit down and talk with you and show you the truth so that you can be fully persuaded and fully committed. But if it's just a matter of, I haven't yet pulled the trigger, I'm still procrastinating, I'm just not quite ready, don't be almost, be altogether. In the book of Philippians in the second chapter in verse 11, Paul is talking about the mind of Christ and how he humbled himself 
became a servant and ended up saying, Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and the Father. Someday, Judgment Day, when Christ comes again and we see him in his glory, no one will be almost persuaded. Everyone will be fully persuaded that he's the Christ. But the problem is, it'll be too late for some. I've told you before, I used to, and it's not a good comment to me when I think about it, but I used to think about Agrippa and I thought, okay, Agrippa, you'll get yours. And now I think, oh, how I wish that Agrippa, when Paul walked off, would, would go back and say, hey, bring him back. I need to confess Jesus and be baptized. If you need to do that this morning or make things right, we hope that you'll not be almost persuaded, but that you'll be fully persuaded and that you'll come as together we stand and sing. number 71 in small songbook number 71. I'd like to take out your Bible again and turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 and we're going to read verses 28 through 30. Uh, I'm the one who writes the good news for Christians that is in the uh, good news uh, every Sunday and so sometimes I get to pick what's going to be in there that goes with what we've been studying. So as Ty read a moment ago, let's read again Matthew chapter 11 verses 28 through 30, where Jesus extends this invitation. Come to me, all, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What's the most weary you've ever been in your life? Well, we know immediately from hearing that word weary instead of tired or some other synonym that weariness can be described in many ways with many different aspects of our life, maybe physically or mentally or emotionally. And so maybe that question is too general for us to answer. I can remember the most sleepy I've ever been, I think. Uh, Stephanie and I, when we used to go up to uh, camp, um, well, we're still going up to camp, but what we used to do was come home on Friday night. Camp ended around 9 o'clock or so. We could usually get on the road by 10 p.m. Um, and the last time that we did that, uh, it was after a, an especially tiring year. I had averaged about three and a half hours of sleep over the course of that whole week. And so 10 p.m., we get in the car in Tennessee and we're driving back to Texas. And and normally, if things went pretty well, we could get home by 7 or 7.30 or 8 the next morning. And by the time we hit Texarkana that year, Stephanie and I had to start switching every 20 or 30 minutes just to kind of limp home. And it was the most sleepy I have ever been by far. And we said, never again, never again are we going to try and drive home on Friday night. We'll sleep Friday, and then we'll come home Saturday during the day. And yet, though I was weary physically in that way, I was not weary spiritually at the end of that week. I was uplifted. I was encouraged. I was zealous for love and good works because of the time that we had spent together with others who loved God and were trying to do what's right. And so I was rested in that way and yet weary at the same time. So what kind of weariness and what kind of rest is Jesus talking about here? Well, it's clear that the rest offered by Jesus is not from any work. He says, take my yoke upon you. Instead, it is rest from futile, purposeless work. It is rest from burdens that we cannot carry on our own, like sin and guilt. It is rest from the burden of perfection to salvation in my own righteousness which Paul says in Acts 15 is a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. The rest offered by Jesus is not from learning. He says, learn of me. Instead, it is rest from a learning without objective truth or application to wisdom. It is rest from the foolishness of this age. And aren't we surrounded by that foolishness at all times? It is well described in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 7. How many in the world today, how many of us are always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth? The rest offered by Jesus is not from virtuous living like the meekness and humility that Jesus describes of Himself. It is virtuous living that means something is is the rest that Jesus offers because it is in a, in a relationship with and an in, in, imitation of Jesus Himself. It is rest from the heartless fulfillment of expectations that others or we ourselves have put upon ourselves. And it is rest into the heart-filled pursuit of the image of Christ. This is true and lasting rest. We will find rest 
for our souls in Jesus. And so if you're weary and heavy laden from sin in your life, if you're weary and heavy laden from laboring and laboring and laboring and getting nowhere, if the burden that you bear is heavy on your back, come to Jesus and He can give you rest. And we invite you to do so as together we stand and as we sing. Again, uh, open your Bibles, this time to the book of Matthew and the 13th chapter. And I want to reference verses 24 through verse 30. And I think it'll be such that you can readily see that we're following the Scriptures and that what we're saying is an accurate picture of what God says or what Christ says. This is what is oftentimes called the parable of the wheat and the tares. And in it, Jesus talks about a man who had a field and sent his servants out to sow in the field wheat. And after a time, when the crop begins to come up, they find their tares there also. And the servants ask about this, what's this? And the master tells them, an enemy has done it. You don't sow wheat and get tares. You had to sow, or somebody had to sow the tares as well as the wheat. And so they wanted to know, shall we pull up the tares? And he said, no, lest you pull up some of the wheat at the same time. Wait till harvest, then we'll go through and gather the tares, gather them up and burn them, and then we'll gather the wheat and put it in the barn. This is one of those parables that Jesus doesn't just leave the interpretation to us. If you'll look down to the book of Matthew in the 13th chapter and beginning in verse 36, he tells us exactly what he's talking about in this parable. And he says, the good seed, the wheat, he said, those represent the children of the king. And the tares, they're the sons of the wicked one, talking about the devil. May I just suggest to you that throughout the Bible, we really have a choice of two parents. 
We can have God as our Father who loves us and cares for us. Or we can have Satan as our Father who really cares nothing about us, who himself is headed to hell, and his greatest joy is to carry as many of God's people with him as he can. In interpreting, he tells us, here are the two, the wheat and the tares, the sons of God, the sons of Satan. And he says, they stay together until the harvest. He says, the harvest, that's the end of time. That's when Christ comes again, we know. And here's the point that I want you to realize and want you to think about. There is a time of separation to come. Presently, the righteous and the unrighteous live in the same plane, in the same world. But he's telling us in this parable that there's a time coming when Christ comes again that we won't be together anymore. That the sons of the devil will be cast out and the sons of God will be received unto God himself. I want you to think about that for a moment. A time of separation where things are no longer as they are in this life. Where workers and associations or associates and friends and family will be separated. Jesus spoke about this really in talking about his coming on one occasion. He says, I tell you that that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken, the other one will be left. Two women will be gathering together. The one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Just saying things are going to change. And while we may have somebody that we're close to here, that if we're both not children of God, then we could possibly be separated. When I was in Fort Smith, Arkansas, I had a very good friend. He was older than I was. But oftentimes he would tell me he had a wife. That she was, he loved her. They had a good marriage. But he would tell me, he said, Harold, the most pressing thing upon my mind at this time is that we're going to pass from this world and we're going to be separated because she's not a Christian. And oh, how he loved her. And oh, how that thought grieved him. Even Peter talked about how that he wished and how that we could possibly be joint heirs of eternal life. The greatest tragedy, though, is not just being separated from people. It's being separated from God. And the Scriptures let us know that when this harvest comes and the wheat's gathered up and the tares are cast aside, those that are tares will be separated from God. In 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 7 through 9, Paul reminds us, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God and those who obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord 
and from the glory of his power. In this world, it really doesn't matter whether you're righteous or unrighteous, you still feel the presence of God. He makes it rain on the just and the unjust. He oftentimes extends blessings even to those that are against him in hoping that maybe his goodness will, will cause them to see how good he is and to change and to repent and to come to. Can you imagine an eternity without one hint of God in your life? That is hell. And that's what the separation means for the unrighteous. In the late 60s or early 70s, there was a song that was on the radio a lot. It was called, I Never Knew You. It was sung by Naomi and the Seagulls, recording I heard. Those words really drove home the separation we're talking about. It said, last night as I lay sleeping, a dream appeared to me. I dreamed about the end of time, about eternity. I saw a million sinners fall down on their knees to pray. The Lord, he sadly shook his head, and this I heard him say. Sorry, I never knew you. Depart from me forevermore. Sorry, I never knew you. Go and serve the one you served before. I thought the time had fully come that I must stand the trial. I told the Lord that I'd been a Christian all the while. But through his book, he took a look and sadly shook his head then placed me over on his left. And this I heard him say, Sorry, I never knew you. I find no record of your birth. Sorry, I never knew you. Go and serve the one you serve down on earth. There were my wife and children. I heard their loving voice. They must have been so happy. Oh, how they did rejoice. Their robes of white around me from their face all aglow. My little girl looked over at me, and this I heard her say, Daddy, we can't go with you. We must dwell in the joys of the Lord. Sorry, we still love you but you cannot be our daddy anymore. Now when I awakened, the tears were in my eyes, and looking all around, and there to my surprise, there was my loving babies, I knew it was a dream. And beside the bed of mine, you should have heard me scream, Father, Lord in glory, I know thou gave thine only son. Father, let me get ready for when you come. Are you ready? If not, we would encourage you to get ready by confessing Jesus, by repenting of your sins, by being buried with him in baptism, by walking the path of righteousness. Will you come if you need to?
on January the 27th, about 9.30 in 1999, the Lord gave me a beautiful voice. And he told me to take care of him and charge people to raise him up in the way of the Lord. I thought I did. I thought I had done everything that I could. But it's obviously that I did somewhere along the way. I love Harrison more than anything in this world. And I don't know quite how to get over it. But I want the Lord to forgive me for whatever I did wrong. And I know I made lots of mistakes. But I always wanted to be a Christian and be with the Lord. I want to ask y'all if y'all will pray for my Harrison and ask God to have mercy on his soul and that he might forgive him for whatever he done because he don't have that opportunity no more. And I know this is a burden on y'all because nobody knows even if Harrison killed himself or if when the investigation is over, he didn't. Either way, I don't have Harrison with me no more, and y'all don't either. But I want the Lord, if there's any way, to forgive him and forgive me for whatever I did or did not do right in saving my Harrison. Thank you. Rodney, I just want to hug you. Love you so much. Love you so much. And I loved Harrison, and I know the folks here did too. And I am grateful that Harrison's eternal destiny is in the hands of God, who is the righteous and perfect judge, who knows all things. And we will, we will try and help you to bear this burden. Um, you said it's a burden. It's a burden that you're bearing, and we want you to know that we bear it with you. You don't bear it alone. And that Jesus is with you. And all of us, all of us can only control ourselves. The things that we do, the things that we don't do in service to God, to try and influence others for righteousness as best we can. And when we stand before God, we stand before Him to give account for the deeds that we've done in the body, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And I pray that Jesus is standing beside me when that time comes. Would you join me in prayer for our brother and for Harrison? Dear God, there are so many promises that you make. We know that you keep them all. And you promise in Romans chapter 8 that there will be times when we don't know the exact right words to say. But through the groaning of our spirit, through Jesus Christ our intercessor, you hear those groanings. 
and you answer according to your will. We groan, Father, and weep with our brother. We weep with Rodney in his great loss. And yet we acknowledge at this time, Father, that we are not the judges of all these things, but you are. And so we come, we come on behalf of Rodney and on behalf of Harrison. Lord, I lead all these people right now, but you know the prayers that I've offered. That I've offered between me and you. And we pray, Father, if there's something that something that we should have done or could have done that we didn't, that You'd forgive us of that. We don't ask You to change Your nature or who You are to be unjust, but we pray for mercy and we pray for grace. And we're so grateful that we're praying to the One from whom all grace and mercy and love flows. There's a great day coming. And when we stand before you and stand before your Son in judgment, we pray that we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of your Lord, and not, I never knew you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. <clears throat> so these uh, notes were made, obviously, earlier this week. Um, I think there are few few feelings worse in the world than the sinking feeling of realizing that you yourself have done something for which there is no solution, something that can't be undone. I'm a fixer. Uh, my girls come to me to fix things. Uh, and I feel like I can fix anything sometimes, but there are some things that we can't really fix, and realizing that can be pretty awful. Um, this example is very silly now with the uh, uh, depth of some of the things that we've talked about and what Rodney shared, but let me share it with you anyway, and maybe it'll be helpful to us. Um, in 2020, my family and I, we got to go to Colorado um, with uh, the pandemic raging. This was one of the places where we could go and be outside most of the time and be able to go to a number of places. Uh, this is a picture of us. While we were there, we got to ride a train from Durango up toward Silverton. Um, we weren't able to go all the way because part of the tracks had been damaged in a snowstorm the winter before. Uh, and I want you to, to look. We're going to zoom in on this picture of my family. I want you to notice those shades around my neck. They're important to the story. I forgot my sunshade. Um, I can't remember if it's at the hotel or back home, but... Uh, we get here, and it's sunny outside, and I've got these light blue Irish eyes, and so the sun hurts me if I'm out in the sun too long. And, and so my dad, being the kind of man that he is, he let me borrow, he calls these his driving shades. And so they're really nice. They're really expensive. He has a little case for them. He keeps them in the car, and he's had them for years and years and years. They're his favorite pair of shades. But when he said, you know, when he saw I didn't have any shades, he said, well, why don't you just borrow these, these sunglasses? Uh, like, you sure? He's like, yeah, of course. You're my son. You can have them. And so uh, I put them around my neck, and then I wore them when I wasn't taking pictures. 
Uh, but we took lots of pictures because it was, it was beautiful um, going up through these mountains. There's a river that kind of ran beside the track. Um, you can see that the train kind of snakes up uh, on these beautiful passes with these rivers. And you guys, most of you know me. We have some visitors that don't know me very well, but most of you know me. Um, uh, and so you can imagine what I did in order to try and get the best picture. Um, you see this. Maybe you can see this guy right here. He's just got his camera out just a little ways. That is not what I did. In order to take good pictures like this one, this picture right here, um, I would lean out, lean out of the train with my camera like this, you know, as far as I possibly could. And taking this exact picture, I leaned out as far as I could, and I felt those sunglasses slip right off my shirt. And I looked down, and there they were, right beside the tracks. And I turned around with this face. And I had to tell my dad I lost his favorite pair of sunglasses. And there was nothing I could do. You can't stop the train. I mean, I guess I could have jumped off, but there would have been bigger ramifications to that, I suppose. And even coming back, we're coming back the other way. There are the shades. Can't scoop them up. I was trying to come up with all these ideas. Maybe we could find something and scoop them up as we go. There was nothing to be done. I couldn't fix it. And my dad... Um, he was quick to forgive because that's the kind of man that he is, but it hurt him, it aggravated him, it put him out. And I couldn't replace those shades. I could get him another pair, but they don't make those shades anymore, and it was a, it was a terrible feeling. And though my motives weren't bad, um, I hadn't been careful with something that was so important and so precious to him. And I rightly felt very guilty about that. But we've had that feeling about more serious things, haven't we? About spiritual things. And I remember having that same sinking feeling of I can't fix it when I realized I was a sinner and I was separated from God. Open up your Bibles one more time, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. I think maybe this is either the best or worst example of this, depending on how you're looking at it. Um, that feeling of, I've done something that I cannot make right. There is nothing that I can do to make this right. There were some who felt exactly that way in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit has fallen upon the apostles, and Peter, standing up in the midst of the eleven, he, he gives a sermon on this occasion. We call it the first gospel sermon. And wouldn't you know it, the sermon ends with an invitation. But before we get there, he quotes from the, the prophet Joel and says this is what Joel was talking about, the day of salvation when whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That day is now, it's here. And in verse 22 he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. And He goes on to convince them, to persuade them from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And He brings that to a conclusion in verse 36. 
Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, He told them, men of Israel, hear my words, and they did. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Can you hear the desperation in their words? It's not, okay, you know, what, well, what can we do about it? Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's it. We blew it. We've been waiting on the promises to Abraham for 2,000 years of a Messiah, and we killed him. We've been waiting on the promises to Moses for 1,500 years of a Messiah, and we killed him. We've been waiting on the promises to David for 1,000 years of a Messiah, and we killed him. We've been waiting on the promises made through Isaiah and Jeremiah and others for 700 to 400 years. We've been waiting all of this time for this one special one to come, the Christ, the Messiah. And He came... And we rejected Him, and we handed Him over to the Romans to crucify Him. That's what they say when they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? We weren't careful with the most important and precious person who ever lived, God's own Son. We killed Him. What shall we do? What can we do? Have you ever wondered what they thought would be the answer to this question? Probably, like us sometimes, they expected there to be no solution. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Sorry, you messed up. There's nothing you can do. It's done. But thanks be to God, that's not the case. And sometimes for us, maybe that's our anticipated answer to our question. God, what shall I do? Things are too bad. I'm too bad. There's no answer. There's no way to fix the problem. But that's not Peter's answer on this occasion. He answers with an invitation. In verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent. Can you imagine the joy at that one word? You mean there's an answer? You mean there is a solution? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. By the authority of the same one that you crucified, you now can be saved. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for, what are you going to get? For the remission of sins, for forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his words were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Can you imagine their joy and relief? The text says in verse 41 that they gladly received his words. All hope was not lost. And so if you find yourself this morning in a, in a mess, you've done something that you don't think you can fix, whether that's sin that you need to be forgiven of, 
Or maybe that's sin that you need to be washed in the blood of Jesus in baptism to have removed. Jesus says, I can fix it. Not me, Reagan. Jesus says, I can fix it. You can't, but Jesus can. How? Jesus says, I died for you. I did the hard part. I made it fixable. And all I ask is that you repent and be baptized and receive the gift the Holy Spirit is offering, salvation, remission of sins. Are you coming? Be careful. It's kind of like raising your hand at an auction. A couple of people have gotten up to like go to the bathroom or something during the invitation song, and I'm... But maybe, maybe this is the opportunity you've been waiting for. You've had four chances this morning. I don't know, maybe you'll have a thousand more over the course of your life. Maybe, maybe you have years and years to respond to the invitation. Or maybe this is, this is your last chance. Well, this is your chance right now. If you, need, if you need Jesus, if you need the prayers of the saints, if you need to repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, whatever you need, Jesus is calling you. Won't you come now, but together we stand while we sing. I hear thy word.